This episode is brought to you by Northern Rural Supplies. Northern Rural Supplies proudly service the Kimberley and Pilbara region, specialising in livestock sales, real estate, animal health and management, fencing, fertiliser, water and all other requirements. They stock your everyday needs to feed your dogs, cats, horses, chooks, camels and even goats. The whole team is based in Broome, so make sure you give them a call for all of your agricultural and semi-rural needs. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. As a child, Jimmy McGlynn's mother said he had a lot of character, but his aunt said he needed a flogging. He wasn't a naughty kid, though just full of energy that couldn't be contained within a classroom. So, even though he excelled at school, at the end of year 10, he headed up north to start working on cattle stations. In the years that followed, Jimmy progressed through the ranks to leadership roles, even winning the Territory's Best Ringer competition. But, ultimately, his journey would be marked by two significant accidents, a traumatic brain injury and a broken back. In this episode, Jimmy shares the stories of those two accidents which occurred almost exactly 10 years apart. We also discuss the cattle industry's attitude towards work health and safety, the culture around alcohol, and taking on responsibility at a young age. To start our conversation, Jimmy described the lead-up to the accident which saw him left in a coma for eight days. Yeah, I tailed... Uh, about 2,000 wieners by myself that day on a 400 and caught up with the fellas at the yard who were drafting, preg testing, um, branding, and then <clears throat> I had to go back and yard up all my wieners so they went in the yard overnight because I was fresh. So I didn't have a motor car, so I shot back on the motorbike, yarded all the wieners up. And then waited for the fellas to come home with another load of fresh wieners in the truck. And they didn't get there till dark, so it would have been 7.30ish. And I didn't have a motor car, so I rode the motorbike down to the yard. It was only a kilometre from where we were camping. We were camped 80 k's from the main homestead. And, yeah, buddy unloaded the truck, jumped back on the bike, turned around and went back and clipped a wiener that was freshly branded that I didn't see in the grass and, and friended it. Yeah, got flown to Darwin with a um, yeah severe brain injury. I was yeah had in a coma for eight days before I woke up. 
Holy. So for everyone listening, like this is the first time I'm actually hearing the details of this story. Like I knew you'd had a head injury previously, but I hadn't, I don't know anything about it. So this is me kind of reacting on the spot. So were you wearing a helmet when you were riding that motorbike? Yeah. Yep. It was because we had all safety protocols, like wear a helmet, put your seatbelt on in motor car, all that sort of thing. But so I had my helmet on and like I didn't have it done up, but so I've clipped this wiener. It fre- there was, it's a holding paddock around the yard, so it was freshly branded wieners, so they were a bit slow and a bit steady and it was lying in the grass against a fence and the road went along the fence and, yeah, it popped down in front of me, went over the handlebars. And I've hit my head with the helmet on, like it's broke the helmet and it's sort of rolled off, but I didn't go too much further without it. And, yeah, I hit the, hit the deck and all the... On the stock camp, they all got together. All the safety we've done first aid, so their buddy strapped me all up, put me on called Elliot, which was the closest town, which was only a community. And the Ambo come out from there, and I met the RFDS in Elliot. At this time, my brother was managing the station next door, and on the two-way, they were the same channel. He could hear everything was going on. So he met me at Elliot, and he hopped in the RFDS plane and flew up to Darwin with me, and then... Yeah, he had the he had the worst part of it all, really. Like he had to buddy tell mum and dad what was going on, but like keep a bit of the info because it was serious. Like, they're like oh, he's probably not going to wake up and all this sort of thing. So yeah, I feel sorry for him. I have to put, like I have to deal with that with me mum. Like she was going crazy, and um, yeah, I was in a coma for eight days before I woke up. And then when I woke up, I saw you know when you. Hit your head and like you're asleep, like, and they're like, Oh, could, did you know what was happening? And it's like, I don't know, but like, I knew my family were there. Like, when I, as soon as I woke up, I sort of knew they were there. Like, they're talking to you every day and that way you're asleep. Like, I knew they were, like, I knew they were there. Your mum was there. And, um, like, you wake up with all your life support and everything in. And I just, <clears throat> I had a whole left side deficit, like, nothing in my left side of my body worked. And I was like, just trying to pull shit out and, yeah. And, Kept hitting mum and I was like, get this out of me, pointing at the um, tubes down my throat. She's like, it's all right, darling, I'm going to do it in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I think I had two weeks in Darwin where I learned to walk and sort of talk properly again. And so, yeah, yeah. Like, when you hit your head, I, I had a diffused axonal, left ventricular, um, subdural and subarachnoid bleeds. And yeah, the, I think the left side, because everything was gone there for a bit, I'm a bit worried, but it all slowly come back. When your brain's hurt, that bit can't heal again and become the same. Everything else in your head has to sort of pick up the pieces. And, yeah, I've done that for two weeks, sort of getting ready, and they sent me to Sydney to the brain injury unit where I had, like, more intensive physio and therapy with the, uh, what's it called, the psychologist and that. It, I just, um, like how, like something you could never have anticipated of happening that you just poke and, you know, you're just on a motorbike going for a short, you know, a short ride, um, wearing a helmet and how were you going far? I mean, it was nighttime, so I can't imagine that you were going particularly fast, especially because you didn't have that far to go. Like you only had a kilometre to get back to camp. Yeah, I think. 60, 60, 70, maybe like. Oh, okay, mate. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's, I guess that is kind of, it's not exact. But, and were the crew around 
like, do they, how long was it, do you reckon, until they, do they know until they found you? Yeah, and- so we had the lights. I was using the lights of the canner who was driving behind me. Like they, they were right there. Oh, like they seen everything. Yeah. Far out. That's, um, that's so lucky that they, yeah. and, and that they'd had some first aid training. And I mean, cause at the start of every station year, like, you know, most people, you, you do your first aid course and you always, you know, have a bit of a laugh bandaging up your friends and, you know, thinking, you know, the worst thing you're ever probably going to have to do is, you know, maybe do a snake bite or a yeah. bit of a heat Would stroke. It? You never think you're going to have to do like the state, you know, stabilizing someone and, like the you know such an extreme injury. Yeah, well, I was pretty lucky because Pete Rawley, me mate, I grew up with. He was there. He was also working at the station, and he um was the first one to me because I was like having I was fitting and convulsing when oh. I hit the ground. Like and he knew I had a falsy from getting into blues when I was young and dumb. Um, he tried to get it out and nearly bit his finger off. Oh, you had a false tooth. Yeah. Oh, so he was worried that that would come loose and, and you'd choke, choke on, on it. it. I was on my back, yeah, fitting. I just. To be honest, if somebody started having it, like I've done my first aid course that many times. I did another refresher last year, like RFDS came out to the station I was on and we spent two days going through all that stuff. If somebody was fitting right now, I don't know if I would in the, especially in the moment, but like have that thought to be like, this is what we've got to do. And yeah, like they're, oh, that's, um, that's so lucky they were right behind you though. And that they, yeah. Oh, right there, yeah. And also lucky, I guess, that if you're coming off your bike and if they are behind you close enough that you're using their lights to kind of see where you're going, that they didn't kind of go over the top of you as well. Yeah, like, yeah. So, yeah, okay, so you're taken up to Darwin um, and obviously, yeah, your family come over and, and see you. When you, I guess, when you did wake up and then you they did take the tubes out and stuff, were you able to, to talk or how did you communicate with your mum, or could you understand also when they were trying to tell you what had happened? I, yeah, I was in a thing called post-traumatic amnesia, um, PTA, and yeah, I was in that state. I think that yeah, that's for fourteen days, and that's like I wasn't allowed to watch telly. I wasn't allowed to be asked a lot of questions, like because your brain's trying to heal and you don't want it to be thinking too much. So I just wanted me to be in a room that was set on a really cold temperature. I had to be in a cool room and like put in a fridge basically and just, yeah, just sat there, just let me brain heal. And cause you're, I guess you say out of mind, like I was, wasn't thinking properly. Like, yeah, I had mum and dad there and like my brother and my dad, they weren't allowed to visit me as much. They were like restricted because the, I'd always ask them questions about shit that got me all excited and hyped up. Oh. And yeah, they weren't allowed in there cause yeah, made me, made me brain start ticking too hard. I was trying to heal. So, did you remember? Like, did it take a minute? And you're like, okay, I was on the bike. Now I'm here. Or was, or did your mum have to be like, Jimmy, you come off your bike and yeah, you're in hospital and yeah. Well, I couldn't remember like that day. I still can only sort of remember snippets. Like I can't remember, but I could not remember like a thing. But then when they started talking about it and reminded me, I was like, oh yeah. Oh well, yeah, like I started picking it all back up. I, I couldn't put it all together as if like yesterday, but yeah, it was just like little snippets of it. I could remember parts, sort of figured it out a bit. But I, as for like the ride bike, the motorbike ride home, yarding up the wieners and all that, I cannot remember any of that. But like I can remember the, the morning, yeah. But see, and when you 
like were you with the you said you had to kind of relearn a bit how to speak was that kind of all speech or were there bits you could say or was it like you were thinking but then it just wasn't translating to like yeah. the words coming out like yeah so it was because I had the left side was gone it was like every muscle every every everything like my whole face was like all drooped on one side and stuff so I was dribbling sort of dribbly and in a wheelchair just getting wheeled around but I am um, like talking, like so. Say your brain sends a message to your voice, or like however you talk, it like it sends a message across. It's normally a direct line going from bang to bang. So the message sent is received, and then it happens. So when I hit my head, like it scrambled that a bit, so the message would get sent. It'll do a few laps around a few spots, trying to figure out its way before it got to where it had to be sent, so then it would happen. So it's like any part of my body, moving a foot forward, moving my arms, moving like anything, like just took a second longer. That must have been so incredibly frustrating for you if you're like thinking, I guess like, so, you know, the way we talk now, like yeah. it, it flows and whatnot, and that's kind of in my mind how when you're thinking and I'm not speaking right now, like you can you can be thinking thoughts and that's all working fine, but then to know that it's not, coming out right like i don't know like almost like you're trapped inside in a way is yeah, that yeah yeah i've been asked that a couple of times but like in the pta like I, you don't know like because you, you're not in a state of mind to know like if i knew what i am now you'd probably feel that way but yeah i definitely had the shits we've not been able to move my hand and that because i remember mum talking about it but yeah, it wasn't like a oh, shit. I'm going to be stuck like this forever. Like I never, like never felt that way. So you're kind of just taking it like yeah. day by day or moment by moment, and that's really lucky that I guess that you weren't, um, that you couldn't think of it in in that kind of other sense, like the way I'm kind of thinking about it now, because that would have just yeah made it so like cause so much more anxiety and stress and yeah, it wouldn't have been very good after being like fit. Like I was in my prime. With fitness and everything and, like, love and life and then, yeah, put to nothing. Like, I lost, I think it was 16 kilos in those eight days. Like Holy was, hat box. And it, like, I didn't have a lot of fat on me, so it was all muscle. And how old were you at the time? 20. Far out. So, yeah, yeah like you said, sort of young, young buck, kind of up in the territory, you know, yeah. living your best life. So autonomous and capable and, you know, fit and strong. And then this happens. And so tell me about, um, so after Darwin, a couple of weeks in Darwin, they flew you over to Sydney. Yeah. I was in the brain injury unit in Sydney, Liverpool. And I was there for a few weeks. I think it was four, possibly six, but, um, yeah, just doing intense physiotherapy and neurology type things. And, I'd been there for a few weeks and it was like, it was pretty confronting in there. Like you're not in your own room and that, like I was sharing a room with another fellow with the injury that was 10 times worse than mine. Like he had half his head missing and like wake up in the middle of the night. And like, like it was, it was, I didn't really like it there. Like it was pretty bad. No, yeah, the food wasn't as good as Darwin. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, done me weeks there and like I, like I'd, been there for a while and I was allowed days out by this time and I think mum and dad, they'd got a, um, like a unit in Sydney, like just renting one out while they could just see me closer and just live there. And 
So I used to go see them and I've got cousins in Sydney. They come in, catch up with them. And I was like, I was allowed to do a little bit more, but just never allowed by myself doing stuff. And then, like, it got to a point where I was a few weeks in there and I could, I could do 50 push-ups, I could do 50 sit-ups, I could run, I could do all this stuff, I could jump over that. And I was like, I'm ready to go. Like, I was like, just trying to get out of there and seeing the neurologist. And she's asked me to like to just go thumb to finger, like touch the tips, like just up and down, like pinky, next one, next one, all the way to the index. And like I looked at my hand, I could sort of do it with my right hand. I looked at my left hand and oh, there was no way I was going to be able to do it. Like I was trying to do it and just could not, my brain just could not figure it out. Like how did, I was like, what is going on? And that was like a big realization that I was actually, what was actually going on. With, with like my head, like there was nothing, like it wasn't all working properly. And here I am saying, no, nah, look what I can do. I'm ready to go back to work, send it. But no, nah, yeah, there's a few neurons still not firing. Well, I'm watching you do it right now and you're doing it pretty well. But that, yeah, that must have been like a bit yeah, of a kick in the guts. As soon as they said that, like I just lived on it. I was like, no, nah, you can't tell me I can't do something. And I was like, just kept, yeah, kept doing it till I could. Because it, yeah, it was, it was a kick in the guts. Because like you think you're ready, and you're finally starting to get your head back on track and back in line with things. And yeah, I was like, shit, I have to sort myself out. So did you end up because you thought you were ready to go back to work? Did that obviously that didn't happen, and you had to stay a couple more weeks at the yeah. Well, I had another two weeks, and then I went, had to go home to Kudamundra, and from Kuda I had a couple weeks doing. Like physio, like they just correspondence with Sydney, like the fellas I had in Cuda, and I had to stay there. I had like an intense gym regime, like every day, and then back to physio, and then see me doctor, and yeah, just kept going like that for a bit. And um, like I had to go to Aubrey to the brain injury unit, trying to like get my license back and stuff, because when I hit my head, like they just disqualify everything. And um, so I lost all my truck license, my motorbike license, car license. So I've gone over there to do that. And like the the head brain man was over there and he was the guy that was like going to sign my form to say I could go back to work. And um, like that's all I was trying to do. I just wanted to get back. I don't know why I was pushing so hard for it, but I think it was because it was winter down home and I hadn't had one since I'd been away from home. It was bloody cold. But I'd gone over there and like I'd got me got me license back. I just, Essentially, I had to do like a peas test again. And I, don't know, I think I stalled the car like five times. Is this little petrol thing? Because when you got yells, you, you practice driving like you've been practicing. But I'd never driven at all. Like I had twenty acres at home. Like I wasn't driving around the property or anything. So I hadn't driven at all since. Like I'd stacked it, and then gone to do these tests. Like stalled five times, buddy. Did all sorts of silly things, but they still passed me because it was just like. It was, it was my reac- reaction time. They like if I could break as soon as there was an incident or as soon as this and that, it was right. Like yeah, they were happy with me. I know you said not too long ago that um, when you were first, I think, getting loaded up on the RFDS plane or, or being maybe it was when you're in Darwin. They said you know like that you might not mm. wake up or you might not like be the same when you wake up. When obviously you've you've kind of um, thrown that out of the water and, and come back you know, like that hasn't been the case. But when did that 
that diagnosis kind of start to change and what were they telling you, like what the expectations they were giving you for how the rest of your life was going to look? Uh, I'd sort of, from the start to sort of finish of on my rehab, like the start was like people with the brain injuries Jimmy Scott received, he's 90% of people that get the diffused axonal die or in a vegetative state and then the 9% of the temp, uh, die and then the 9% left over, they're in an impaired or vegetative state. Like, so the 90% die and 9% is impaired or vegetative and then 1%, like, they're free to go, like, they're normal again. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm normal, but, like, there could be a glitch there somewhere. But, um, the only thing I've noticed now is, like, me, what is it called? The short-term memory. Like, if I hear something that's not fully important, like it just might fluff off with the fairies. So but, you don't remember telling me this morning that you are going to give me 500 bucks and a potty calf? No, I can't remember. Oh, because I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, no, nah, yeah, that's the only thing I sort of notice now is like short-term memory. Or maybe if someone asks a question about something, like I'll just think about it a little bit longer. But, yeah, so <clears throat> that's all I've had to sort of get around. That, um... I just, yeah, it's a lot. Like, that's a lot for you, and especially at such a young age. So you finally did get the sign-off to go back to work. How long was it between the accident and then when you got to go back to the station? Uh, it was the end of three months. That it seems was, really yeah, short. so it was like miraculous recovery that they've looked into, of like well, how they treated me when I was um, injured. Like, I didn't have to have, uh, like, Swelling evacuate, like they didn't have to cut into my head to save me. They just, I had an intracranial pressure bolt in there with wires that went to a computer and then it would tell them how much my brain swelled and they just adjusted me drugs to suit that. And yeah, I was on like 50 milligrams of morphine every hour. My liver was buggered after that. So if you were, when the accident happened, you were 80 Ks from the homestead of the station. Yep. And then, the nearest township or Indigenous community was Elliot, and there's only just a nurse's station there. Yeah. So how far from Elliot would you have been? Uh, or did 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 the plane come out? Did no. somebody come and meet you at the station, or did they have to drive you into Elliot? Yeah, so Elliot has the Ambo, like it's got a little Ambo there. So they had um, just a nurse. Just that's They're pretty high up nurse, I guess. I don't know if they're a nurse practitioner or just a registered nurse, but they am. Um, my fellas, like the Helen Springs guys, they put me on the back of a canner, you like a truck, low rigid truck, um, in a in a full body brace, like we had a sling in that out at camp for safety, and they just like chocked me all up so I wouldn't move, held me on there, and they've poked, started heading in. It's about I think it's 140 k's, might be might be a bit more. I haven't bloody thought about this for a while, but yeah. And then the Ambo, they come towards, they come towards us, and like we met on the road, and then they transferred me into the Ambo, and then because my mate Pete was with me, he stayed with me till then. So then we've, when we've met Ben, he's taken Ben Jute back to Helen Springs, and buddy, I feel sorry for Pete because I pissed myself on the way and he had to carry me jeans. <laughs> 
I'm sure he didn't mind, like in the yeah. big picture scheme of things. But so sorry, you just said you had one of those braces out at camp with you. So this is this is like one of those kind of like surfboard looking things that you like yeah. that you put people on. They kind of get strapped in, kind of see on like Bondi Rescue or any of those kind of shows. Yeah, similar. Yeah. They had one of those out at camp. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen one out ever on a sta- – I mean, I'm sure there probably are definitely stations that have them and they'd be in the office or with the rest of the RFDS kit or something. But how amazing that you guys had one of those out at camp and then they didn't just have to try and pull some polypipe or some star pickets out and yeah. create something to – I was pretty lucky like that. But when I say camp, like the Helen Springs camp, it was the flashiest camp I've ever been in. Like you got a room. We didn't have air cons and that, but we had a kitchen. And, yeah, it's not really camp. It's just not on the station. Was this pre-Gina Reinhardt as well? Yep. Like this yep. is back when it was just Kidman? Yeah, just Kidman. Because yeah. I know like obviously since Gina, um, you know, has, has bought up properties, there's been a lot of um, uh, changes with safety or just, you know, because of the mining side of things. Yeah. But to show that the, this level of safety was um, like there with the company like well beforehand, that's just amazing. Um, and I guess they like – it's in this emergency and they're probably wanting to get you to town as fast as possible. But you just said like you're in the back of a, of like a semi rigid, like little truck. Um, so obviously they can't go too fast. Cause imagine, you know, like don't want to like be on a bit, bit of a bumpy dirt road and kind of fling you out the back or have an accident while they're driving. Like what a painstaking drive to make as well. Yeah. Not that you would have known. So were yeah. you just out cold or oh, were you yeah, still was, seizing? Or? No, I was lucky. So I, I think I was popping into a fit every like, certain amount of time but Jeez. I am um, yeah I, I was lucky in the whole ordeal because I was asleep I knew nothing so it was everyone else around me that like they had to deal with it I f- feel sorry for them happening to us buddy would have been confronting like mum said Pete come up and visited once when I was asleep and like he walked in and just like yeah she could just see him, like fuck like yeah it's a lot for yeah for anyone to take in. Yeah. What what was your family's reaction when you're like, all right, I've got the all clear, I'm going back out to the station, and again, just three months is just like the blink of an eye, though. Yeah. Well, mum, mum was always a bit heckers about it, but she sort of got over it after a bit because I was I was the only reason I was allowed to go back so quick because I was going just to help out on my brother's station, which is uh, Brunchilly next door. And if it was anyone else, like, I wouldn't have been allowed because going from, like, a senior management role, junior management role on the station to, like, nothing again, like, it would be a bit hard to deal with. And, like, fatigue's a big thing with head injuries and, like, the days on the station always, like, it could be up at four, not home till six every single day, physical hard work all day. So... Like they knew I was gonna, like I was gonna crumble. I was gonna buckle after a couple of days. Instead of being at my place, where I had to step out and let the fellas do it all, it'd be a bit like disheartening for me. So they let me go work for Ben. Well, I could just say we brass, my buddy. I'm gonna have to have to say off and buggered, and like I wouldn't, I could sort of deal with him a bit better and talk to him. No worries about that sort of thing. So before the accident. You'd been in a some of a leadership role. What was yeah, the was, role you had? Yeah, I was leading hand. And then, so when you went back to work for your brother, what what was your role then? Uh, just recovery man. Yeah, just, okay. Yeah, so I was just yeah there. I I didn't even try because it wasn't my station. It was I didn't try and be help anyone with bossing or anything. I just 
was one of the men I was fit in. Yeah. So you're just kind of taking the opportunity to, I guess, kind just of get back, build your fitness back up and ease back into it. But how, how lucky, I suppose, that you had, that you were able to go work with your brother, that you yeah. could feel comfortable enough to let him know when you kind of hit your limits. Whereas if you were working for someone else, you know, you might have tried to just, you know, do that whole like, oh, she'll be right and tough it out kind of thing. Mm. It was from start to finish through the whole thing, I was, like there must have been someone up above watching or like making it all happen. Like in my plane flight, the RFDS had like a, a specialised person in, in anaesthesia or something which was able to start the process. And then when I cared in Darwin, like it was all perfect. Like it was all, I healed real quickly, fixed everything. And then having my brother up, like after rehab, I was able to come back quickly. Like everything sort of just worked out in my favour, which I'm bloody thankful for. How long, I mean, I don't think it's like asking how long is a piece of string, but the recovery process for, I guess, before you felt like you were kind of back to, I mean, do you, did you, I suppose you've never felt with what you just said before, like that you're a hundred percent to pre-accident, like you'll be forever changed. But when did you start to feel, I guess, some semblance of being kind of not the word normal, not that you're abnormal, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like your old self in a way. Yeah. I reckon it wouldn't have been till like two years after that I was like, shit, I did have a bit going on. Yeah, because my family would always say, oh, Jimmy, settle down doing that. Um, Don't do that. Like, you, you got to watch what you're doing. you still got a bit going on. And like, I was like, no, I'm right. I'll just send him. But, yeah, like, yeah, it was definitely, it would have been at least two years after because I was told don't drink, don't climb things above head height like don't do all this stuff and like when I was a kid I was like don't tell me what I can't do and just straight into it and yeah I, yeah when I was drinking when I shouldn't have been like a, yeah it was two years later I was like nah this is bad and quit for 12 months and then yeah sort of the culture of the industry went back into it but um yeah it was just it was a like I could see changes and like I feel good now and I, I'm just so glad it's all worked out. I You've been um, – I'm just thinking you, you kind of – it was only three months before you were back at work. Um, so you're obviously trying to get back to, to – I'll use the air quotes – normal life as quick as possible. Mm. And then like you said, you've been told like don't do certain things like don't drink or don't whatever. So I, and you said like that didn't last as long. Like you, you started drinking before they'd recommended. Um, but other activities like what, you know, were you jumping on motorbikes or I know you, you said as well growing up, you'd been riding in rodeos and stuff like how long before you started, I guess, doing some of those risky activities again. And, and what was it like? I mean, what was it like the first time you got back on a motorbike? Yeah. I can't, um, I can't remember any restrictions around the motorbike. Like, I think it was like when I got my car license and that I was able to ride again. It was just, um, yeah, I'd, I'll, definitely when I got back to work, I was restricted. Like, they didn't let me go mustering and do that sort of thing. I always had to do some other boring job. And that's, um, it would have, it would have been the time that I had at Brun Chili, like that I would have, Build up. I just can't remember it off the top of my head exactly when I was allowed back on the bike. I think I was allowed on it. I think it was actually, you know, it was a part of my 
rehab was to ride a motorbike every day on the station, but it was not like when we're working. It was just controlled environment where I ride up the road, do this, do that. Turn corners sharp, yeah, just like build up. So it, it's like anyone when you first start riding a bike on a property, like you let them go yard, yard up the horses, like you're allowed to run the horses in. So I guess I was like first year again, they let me run the horses in and then I build up from that. Were you afraid the first time you got back on a bike? Nah, not at all because like you can't remember. So there was no, oh, she did some motorbike, make me hair stand up. Nah, I didn't have any of those sort of things. That's that's pretty lucky, I guess. Like, yeah. Especially because it's just something you've grown up doing your whole life. You kind of don't have to, you know, second thought about it. Um, and then and then obviously this happens. I I just had wondered if you know you, you get back on a bike, and it's not like you were doing anything crazy. It's not like you were like okay, I was gone flat out through this you know scrubby country with ant hills and sinkholes mm. everywhere, chasing this rank scrub bull, you know, and I was doing some crazy wheelies and. Sp- skidding and whatever and had accident like you were just going down a straight road like a a, a just you know as normal as it gets and that's when it happens so uh, so it's not something that like plays on your mind these days when you jump on a motorbike that no that's i hope it doesn't now like after i'm bringing the sorry like being like really and you're like oh great i hadn't thought about it until you said that stuff the only thing that like i think about now with it is like the importance of a helmet and doing your buddy chin strap up like so did your helmet come off though at any yeah, point like it, it shattered like it was busted i must have just like some had mad whiplash where i cracked straight in the ground because yeah the beast it was dark red couldn't see it in the dark and yeah just collected him hit the ground with the helmet on and then sort of rolled for a little bit and come off and then okay so the helmet by the time you kind of stopped on the ground at some st- at some point, yeah. the helmet had come yeah, off. Yeah, had come off. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm sure everyone has come out of that experience. And I guess it's something you think like, oh yeah, it's on. It's it's like jumping in a car. Like I'm just going to go pop down to the airstrip to to meet the mail plane or something. Oh, I mm. need a seatbelt. Like you just don't. Yeah. There's so many things that we do in that sense. Um, but I guess yeah, it doesn't. The things don't work unless they're put on. Um, so I um so I guess yeah you've taken some time coming back to work. What um I know you do a lot of uh like your I would call you like Jimmy with nine lives, but you you were you, you know, you're an active person. Um so yep. you're getting back mustering on motorbikes. You also are a bullfighter. Mm. So for anybody listening that isn't like familiar with that, um you know, when you see somebody coming out at a rodeo riding the bull, there's a couple of guys in there on the ground that are there just so that the minute the person comes off the bull, they're there to kind of distract the bull or, or if something goes to shit, they kind of step in and help. So like a, I mean, bullfighters are the, the casual term for it, I suppose, in, in, over in the States where it's, you know, big professional sport, they're called professional like protection athletes or athlete. Oh God, why can't I remember the thing? But you know, like it is a, uh, like your, uh, athlete protection. Something or <laughs> you're like you had it right the first time. Yeah, you're like Steph. Don't make it too fancy. Calm down. Um, so yeah, you, how does that all work with with your brain? Like obviously, because you've got to be thinking pretty quick on the spot. The thing about bullfighters is that you're very like they're they're almost like ballerinas. Like they're very bloody nimble on their feet. Um, 
and very quick responses. Like it's it's quite when you, especially when you see some good ones, like it's mm, like, a, like Jimmy McGlynn. Um, like it's quite impressive to watch. Um, yeah, how does that go with your injury? Uh, when I first started trying to get back into it, my mum was like adamant I had to wear a helmet and all this thing. I was like, nah, it'd be right. But um, was that for riding or for fighting? For fighting, because I by this time I had started. Like I started in two thousand. And nine, and yeah, I was actually pretty lucky because like I always rode, love riding, and then we got to a rodeo. And they didn't have enough bullfighters. I'm like, oh Jimmy, you come and give us a hand. Like, all right, I'll see what I can do. Never done it, and then just the fellas like I had Jared Baldwin just just talking to me all the time and telling me, and they I got paid for it, and I was like, whoa, I didn't have to win to get paid, and I'm still in the. Like, you still smell the cow shit. You still hear the bells rattle. Like, still, same atmosphere. I was like, oh, I might try and pursue this. Like, if they don't have enough fellas, I'd see how I go. And, yeah, sort of went from there. But with my head, like, I, don't, I think I was past a point of having to worry about too much with anything. Like, I was allowed to jump. I was allowed to do anything. I was allowed to ride a motorbike as fast as I could. Like, yeah, I'd... But like getting back into bullfighting, the first rodeo was Easter. So it happened, I hit my head in May 20 and first, uh, not 20, sorry, 10. And then the first rodeo was 11 in Easter at Easter time. So it was Aleron Rodeo. It's one of my favorite ones. We've always gone there. Good committee, good show. But yeah, it was the first one back and, um, yeah, I don't think it slows, like, it doesn't slow down in that moment. Like, the more you can get to, the better you are. It's like anything. Practice makes perfect. But, um, I didn't see any, anything slow, anything different. It was just, yeah, get back into, back into the ring. It was good. And so, okay, so the accident was 2010. So we're a good 12 years down the track now. And you've, you know, it has, aside from obviously slowing you down for a period of time, it hasn't seemed to, from my understanding, had massive long-term um, impacts on your ability in the industry. Like you've gone on and worked in roles of head stockman and overseer. Um, you're like you've kept progressing through the industry and working on stations in. Um, you've gone over to WA, which is where I first met you, or where you're lucky enough to have first met me mm-hmm. um, <laughs> as a model in a photo shoot. Yeah. Um, and. And, you know, back in the territory now, is there anything that um, that it does still impact you with, aside from what you were saying before, with a bit of sh- short-term memory stuff? Nah, I am. Um, I get, like, I won't let it define anything that I do sort of thing. Like, I won't use it as a reason or, like, um, like say I did forget something and it implicates someone else, I'm going to go, oh, no, nah, don't worry about that. That was just my head. It's never, like, that's not something I'll do, and it's never happened. Like, I can manage it. Like, I'll get a whiteboard marker out and write all the little little things that I probably would forget on my windscreen and my Toyota. But, yeah, I can manage it. It's all manageable. It's easy things. Now, so first you have your hand, then mm-hmm. you got your head. Yep. You know, good, well, not good, you know, bad things come in threes. Um you think that uh, your head injury would be enough to to keep you going for the rest of your life? Don't need to have any more injuries after that. But um, 
you know, almost 10 years to the day later, you had another injury. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was working um, in the Kimberleys in WA and on a motorbike again, my favourite machine. And one of my good mates, Danny Kimber, flying the helicopter, he's like, got a wild one over here for you, Jim. Like, I was like, yep, no worries. So I just drive over, just going steady because the, the bull wasn't moving off him, off his pressure. So I've gone over. It's it's seen me turn around, took off the right way. So I've just been going steady, just like I did out in the corner of my eye, just poking along, just going steady. And, um, yeah, my front wheel went down a big melon hole and I went over the handlebars, um, got knocked out and fractured four vertebrae. Like, I was only going steady. If I'd have been poking along right, I would have been right. But I was watching him and watching, yeah, and it was long grass, good year. He didn't even see it. Come over, broke me back. So you and motorbikes, first time motorbike accident, break your hand, second time traumatic brain injury, coma and a coma, yeah. um, third time break your back. Mm. Bloody hell, Jimmy. Yeah, I know. It's you think you'd learn the first time. So, so after, like, in the, did you stay conscious throughout this accident? Like, nah. did you know what was happening, or were you out cold? I can, I can sort of remember smacking, like it was the worst pain I felt, like, because I done like a scorpion. My face hit, and my whole body come over behind me. And um, uh, Brody Bean actually reckons he seen my feet slap the ground next to either side of my head. And I was like, oh, I cannot bend that way, and. And so I was there, like convulsing again, and they like they're talking. Me, you all right, Jim? Yeah, how you going there? And they thought I was talking to him on the two way because my hands were up, I was flexing. But um, yeah, I was knocked out, and like, the first thing I can remember is like Danny had landed his job, I hopped out, and sort of woke me up, and I got up and was like, couldn't breathe. It was the worst winded I've ever been in. I was like, <gasps> couldn't breathe, and um, as I tried to roll up and get it around, I was just. Couldn't sit still, my back hurt, and I was folded full 90 degrees, like, forward, and just couldn't get straight, like, it was just hurt that much. And so Danny's picked the bike and everything up, and they sort of put me, I sort of scrambled over the helicopter, hopped in, met up with the fellas at the yard that were working at another yard, uh, jumped in the car with my partner, Jamie, and she drove me straight to Fitzroy um, Hospital. Where I walked in and like they knew I was coming, I walked in there, um, still bent over 90 degrees, still <gasps> can't breathe because the bottom of me lungs had collapsed from where they'd been crushed. And they gave me two endone and said, we'll see how you go in 10 minutes. And then a friend of mine who I shoe her horses, she was a nurse practitioner, she was off that day. Jamie sent her a photo of me in the hospital and she's coming flying in, started doing these checks and it's going, Mad and yeah, it's like spinal, everything I need to take precautions. Gone, guess done things the right way. And I've yeah, then been flown to uh, uh, Broome where they've found that I've yeah, broken me back. So, I guess that begs the I mean, this might sound really obvious, but um, will be a really silly question to ask. So, obviously, you can have a broken back and still walk, yeah, it was uh, it was a compression fracture. For vo- for four vertebrae from the T8 to the T11, which is like just little chips off the end of the bone. It's not like spinal cord or anything. It's not. It's nothing severed. It was just yeah. God, you are like 
nine lives, Jimmy McGlynn, and also mm. like you and the RFDS must be pretty tight by now. Um, what what does that mean though? Like what what was the implications of having a broken back? Like obviously, if you can still walk, is it just rest up for a few days? You know, wait until the bruising goes down and, and back to work, or is this another kind of whole recovery period? that needs to, you know, in a whole process? Yeah, sort of. I had um 12 weeks in a brace, which had, like, went from my neck to my hip sort of thing and just kept me all square in the right line. Um, So I had 12 weeks off. I was in the brace, I think, the last sort of three weeks I was on light duties. I was just helping out in the kitchen, peeling potatoes. But um, as for injuries go, like, it was the worst pain I've had, like, it, out of everything, like, your back. Like, you just feel it. Like, every winter I still feel it. Now, but yeah, it's worse because. So when I was in hospital, like I wasn't allowed to get up or move or anything. It was just like full spinal precaution, all straightened out, waiting for when I start um, physio and such. And like I was trying to wean this bottle, and like I couldn't even roll over, and like that crushed me a bit. Like that was like you're saying with the brain injury. Like, did you have a realization period? And like, yeah, when I couldn't roll over and I was sort of stuck like that crushed me, I was a bit upset over that. Like I was, and your body in the way of trying to deal with it, like I'd, I'd tense, like I'd tense up every time I go to roll over and something hurts, like you tense, like you flinch. And that just made it a hundred times worse. It was like, yeah, that was the worst pain I've ever been in. I was like, I'm going to be stuck like this forever. I can't walk, can't move, can't do this, can't do that. But yeah, I ended up <clears throat> after a few days and a heap of, Heap of painkillers just, yeah, got through it and then sort of build up again from there. How do you go from a, I suppose, a mental perspective, like having a mindset to, to not let this kind of, I can imagine it would get pretty, it could get all consuming at times or pretty frustrating or, you know, just, yeah, could, you could get in a pretty bad state of mind while you're, you know, wondering what am I going to be like, you know, no, I was pretty lucky with the last injury. Is this the one that's going to, I don't know, put me in a bloody wheelchair or a brace forever or chronic pain for the rest of my life? Like when you don't know what the final outcome is going to be, how did you go about managing your state of mind? Yeah, I it was very hard, very hard. Like because my mind's so busy all the time, being stuck sort of doing nothing, all you got time to do is think and like, yeah, it was bloody hard. I'm glad of it now and thinking back, like if I knew what I knew now, I would have been a better leader for all my fellas like anyone been able to, yeah, just been able to hold on a bit better and control myself. Can you explain that to me a little bit more? Oh, I don't know how to explain it properly. Like, like with safety, with it, I should be right, like any of that sort of thing, like it's a lot easier to come to me now and like with me realization of like what you got to be grateful for where you want to be in work and that like like I just I appreciate it a lot more like I don't take nothing for granted it's um yeah so it sounds like I guess your, your attitude towards safety is kind of mel I mean I hear this all the time about like oh you know like young guys you know bull at the gate or young girls as well but then you talk to them and they're like 10 years later, like, oh, they've mellowed out a bit more. Like, you're not, like, you're kind of not in as much of a, as, a, as a rush or have that, like, she'll be right attitude. You're like, nah, let's take the extra five minutes to do this the safe way. And yeah, because you, you normally, you know, she right, you know, I'll come off or hurt. Like, I'll just get back on. But yeah, no, that hurts a lot. And you 
don't want that to ever happen. Like it's so shit. Yeah, it's manageable. Yeah, but it's I guess it's fight like it can take a real long time before um, you can have the confidence within yourself to think that and to kind of have those boundaries. But even then, it's it's only it can only go so far if you're the one thinking like that and your boss isn't or the rest of your team isn't because then it's still that awkward kind of social pressure and, mm. yeah. It, it's a bit hard, I reckon, with stuff like that. And as long as it's starting at the top, you're generally all right. Yeah, so setting the setting the culture from yeah. the top down. Yeah. So it sounds like you'd be a good manager to work for now, Jimmy. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, what I, I do want to ask you about now, like the other thing that we were going to have a yarn about is shortly or however many months before your last accident, before you broke your back, you'd actually given up drinking. And I think this all ties in together really well with the chat that we, the, the line I think we just kind of had about, um, you know, workplace culture and the whole she'll be right attitude when it comes to occupational health and safety and, and just the way we do things out here. Um, and I know you and I have had some pretty interesting yarns um, in the past about like drinking culture in the industry as well. So mm-hmm. what, you know, so you were, you would have been 29, 30 when you broke your back. And so the year before you'd um, given up drinking. So yep. young fella, late twenties and that I know, yeah. Tell me, I guess how that all came about or why you, why you chose to do that. Oh, well, it always, um, we've drinking like I some, implicating factor of my life that would steer me the wrong way or yeah, just have a big input on me life but always come back to drinking and um yeah so I w- like wasn't supposed to drink when I hit my head and that but I did and then it sort of made me silly pissed a bit all the time like just done stupid things and then so I stopped for me 12 months like what the doctors recommended and then I started drinking again because the culture up here is like, oh, we'll just have a few beers and whatever. I'm not saying that's the reason. Like, the reason is because I just loved it. it was what we did. And, um, so drinking for a while, then working on another property. Um, I was Ed Stockman. Uh, I was drinking, but he used to get into a few fights, which isn't good as a leader. Like, and I'm not showing any good attributes that you should do. So that sort of made me steer away from them. And then, yeah, same thing again, like still on the beers. But he met someone that wasn't very in line with, like, being a nice person socially and took it on myself to make him realise and, yeah, in trouble again. Yeah, so I sort of got to a point in my life where I was like, yeah, this has happened too many times. The icing on the cake was getting charged, um, and having to go deal with court and stuff. It was, um, I got out of it all right. I just, like, I'm not a convicted felon at all. <laughs> like, I'm all good. Um, but like, just the costings of everything and like, I got a fine. I was like, nah, it's not worth it. And people are like, why don't you just have a couple, Jim? Why don't you just have one or two beers? I was like, they taste too good, mate. Like, I can't find a medium. Like, I can't, like, you can't control it. It's depressant. Like, I, I think it's shit now. Like, so. My dad, he actually gave me a ultimatum. 2019 a Christmas party around the Gold Coast. It's like, I'll quit smoking if you quit drinking. 
and I always wanted him to quit smoking because I'm the one out of four kids that doesn't hasn't got any grandchildren for him, and like he's a good bastard, so I wanted to meet him. So I've always kept it on him, and he, yeah, and I was like, radio, no worries, I'll see how we go. And yeah, from then on, just yeah, said no more beers, and it's like it's been been hard the hardest was when i got back to work after christy holidays like because i was with my family for them so it was easy because none of them asked or oh, you want to be or anything so but then after work hot day just winding down you just want to you just want a beer so I got through that and then the next hardest spot was when i went fishing like not catching fish and not having a beer because it's normally on the cans as soon as you buddy fishing so that was the next hardest part but got through that no worries either so, yeah, it's been pretty easy since then. I think it's just incredible um, to have that insight and to be able to make that choice and stick with it. Like, it's something we see – like, I'm not saying you were an alcoholic or anything beforehand, um, but to to be able to make this choice and stick with it, especially as a young bloke – in the bush, in an industry where drinking is just, it's so normalised, it's such a given, it's just, it, it's, you know, having a having a beer is like no different to having a, a bloody scone at smoke or something, mm. like it's just, so not, and I'm not saying it's bad or anything, um, but I guess we see, I mean, there would be countless examples of people that struggle with this their entire life and, and you hear stories of people that, you know, can't handle um, and so I mean, and it's a spectrum. So I'm not saying like you were a full blown drunk all the time or anything, or but you know, because it, it's that whole spectrum. But there are people that um, you know, are do you know, drinking doesn't agree with them or or whatever, you know, like I said, spectrum. But even though it may only affect them sometimes, that they still, you know, it's just this pattern that continues on and on, literally throughout their whole life. Um, so to kind of pull it up relatively early in your life and make a change, I just think is, yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, I took a fair bit of, like, I shouldn't even say a fair bit, like, I always say once is an accident, twice you're a dickhead, and I sort of buggered up more than twice, and I was like, what am I now? So I better pull my head in and got off the beers. Does it, I know you said, like, your dad, it was kind of like, you know, if you do this, I'll do this, um, but before that, were you – you know, was anybody else been like, Jimmy, like, this is not okay? Or was it kind of a really like this, like, um, introspective, like, reflection, like, you know, you kind of sitting down and having a think on your own and kind of coming to that conclusion? Because cause that's, I guess, what it sounds like is also like a lot of this has come from within you. And it's not like you've had somebody sitting down having an intervention and being like, Jimmy, if you don't do this, then blah, blah, blah. Like, and I think that's the other thing that makes it so special. It's not like everyone else has pulled. I mean, other people, I'm sure, may have said things, but it's not like they've been like, you've been given an ultimatum. It's like yeah. you set yourself the ultimatum, which again is like incredible. Yeah, I had influences like in the way of not drinking, like, oh, you should probably settle down ex-partners or ex-bosses or whatever. But um, they never, like it was never do this where you've got to go sort of thing or anything. It was, or I'm going. It was, yeah, it was just... Yeah, I just figured out that, like, it's just no good. As I just look at it now, it's like, it's worse than drugs, like, because it's legal, like, anyone's allowed to get it, like, drugs are illegal, you're not allowed to have them, so no one has them, but drinking 
like you're allowed to. Like, it's, yeah, it's not good. It's not a good thing. I guess it's like a real slippery slope as well. And it's something that's certainly becoming more of a, and I suppose like I'm sure people are, may not have this assumption, but just to, to clarify, like we're not saying drinking is bad and no one should drink and no one should ever have a drink or anything like that. Um, but I guess it's just about having an awareness of the culture that exists and the um, making it more acceptable to say no, I suppose, if you don't want to have a drink, which is certainly something that is being discussed more now with, um, you know, the Sober in the Country um, charity and, and the movement that's kind of going on there. But I know we were young last night and you said that even from – before you were of legal drinking age in the workplace, like you were sort of expected, well, not expected, but it was just normalised and, and okay and accepted mm. and somewhat expected to have a drink. But even then it was the type of drink you had. So do you want to maybe start at oh, the yeah. beginning a bit? And- it sort of it sort of started, we are allowed to have beers even though we weren't of age, but like the culture was you work like men, you get to have beer like men, like drink like men. And like... We were softies if we didn't have the heavier beers, like we were, yeah. So I know we sort of pushed straight into it on the, on the harder stuff, but that's just how it was. It's like anything, like if you don't ride that rank horse, you're a pussy. So you always try and pick, you always pick the harder, more. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it, but yeah, yeah, I was. We were just 17 years old getting told to drink the heavy beer. I look at it now and goes, what a dickhead. Like, why would you? But, yeah. But it's something, I suppose, that you don't even think about at the time. Like, nah, because you look up to the person saying it. So you're like, oh, he knows everything. So, yeah, you just start doing it. Nothing worries you. But then as you, now that I'm older, I look back and go, oh, I'd probably be further in my life if I didn't have that weighing it down. <laughs> Yeah. So I suppose if you were to be, now that you're in a leadership role, like how do you sort of approach this with your staff? Um, also not now that you're in a leadership role, but now you're in like a, you know, you've kept progressing through the ranks and, mm-hmm. um, still, still in leadership positions on a station. Um, how do you approach this with your staff and, and how do you, I suppose you set the culture around alcohol? Oh, uh, like, my partner, she still has beers, so I, I buy them for her because when I have mates come, like, they, they can have them, so then they're not drinking her beers, they're sort of drinking mine, but then, yeah, I don't drink them, I'll just have a Coke or something. But with my staff, they can they can do whatever they want. I'm not going to be their dad. But, um, like, if they are having troubles or, like, they do bugger up with something because of it, like, I'll sit them down, have the, like, have the talk and we try and get through it. But it's it's so hard because, like, the culture is, like, you have a beer. Like, what's wrong with having a beer here? But I had the same thing. But as soon as I got rid of not having a beer, it was like a, I can see, I can see more forward now. But, yeah, the staff, they're all, like, they're all right. I don't, I'm not their dad. They can do what they want. But, yeah, I only help them if I see it becoming an issue for them. Yeah, but I think, I suppose, just from the example you gave before about, um, you know, work like a man, drink like a man, and mm. you know, the manager is the one influencing you, saying like, "No, nah, don't have that mid strength here. Have the heavy, have the bitters, like, have the heavy beer." I think just the fact that you're not doing that to your staff, mm. or you know, um, you know, 
probably just say you're having something at the end of – I think, honestly, for your staff to say – even let's say you still did drink sometimes, even if you're sitting down at the end of the day with your staff and they're like, okay, well, half the time we sit down with Jimmy at the end of the day he has a beer and half the time he has a Coke just to see you doing something different. And so I'm guessing like – but obviously because you don't drink now, every time they do sit down with you in that context and you're having a water or a Coke or whatever, um, just to set that example of like – I just think that's got to be like, yeah. I mean, and they may not realize it at the time, but in years to come, you'll look back and be like, oh shit, like, because it's not, it's not a culture around it. Like, it, I don't, like, I don't care. Like, and I don't know why they cared what beer I drank. And when I was giving up and that, like, I had me mates or fellas, like adults that say, oh, come on, just have one with me. And like, why does it? I need to drink a beer to justify your existence in life. Like, fuck off. I don't want to. Like, and it becomes an argument. Just have one. One. Come on, one. And I was like, why? I'll just drink a fucking Coke and you can drink yours. Like, I think. Why do, why, do I have to put a beer in me? Why does it matter so much to you? Like, why do you care so much? Like, mate, like, piss off. There's something that. It's mad. I don't get it. It does. It affects people in a way. And I was telling you last night when I worked on this place overseas and at the end of the day, we'd come back, um, like on this, on this cattle property and the boys would like get stuck into a carton and I might have one. But when I drink a beer, like, well, I'm not, it depends on the beer, but I'm not like, I'd much rather, I'm a sugar person. So I'd much rather have a soft drink, mm. but also I'd much rather sit down with a bloody like big mob of cake or chocolate or something like that's my treat. Um, but the, the pressure and the judgment and, and the, you know, and it wasn't like a kind of behind my back thing. It was straight to my face. Like, why mm. aren't you having a beer? Like, you know, you're not a part of the team. You're not, you know, what are you too good for us? Like too good to not drink a be- our beers or something like that. And, and I, and luckily by that, you know, I was only like 26, 27, but I was like, I was like, I'd, it's not, you know, I was like, you know what? You give me like a, a, a rum and coke now, right now. Maybe I'd have a few of those. I was like, but also I don't want to get fat. If I'm going to get fat, I want to get fat eating like chocolate. Cause I freaking love that. Like you mm. love your beers. Like you do you, boo. Like I don't care if you're going to sit here and sink a carton. Like you do you. But there seems to be this thing where people are like, um, even now, like I'll go out and you, you go out for a nice dinner with friends and then you order like the tap water or the lemon lime and bitters. And oh, like won't you have a wine with me? No, like I'm right. Oh no, come on. Like let's let's share a bottle of wine. Like, no, I don't want to. Like, but it's okay. Like you can have a wine. I'm not going to sit here and be like, bloody Arco, look at you with your wine. Mm. But there's something about it that really like pushes a button in people. Yeah, yeah. They just can't see why you're not having one with them. Yeah. It's like I'm still sitting here. We're still telling the same yarns. What's the difference between what drink I'm drinking? Yeah. yeah. So. I know you also mentioned you had a bit of a yarn with, with one of your former bosses, like sons at one point, um, he's like a teenager kind of. So I guess if, if, I mean, we've got all sorts of people that listen to this podcast and I know there's plenty of young men and I think it is really, um, like this is a really amazing opportunity for people to hear like your story and your perspective and experience. And, and we're not sitting here telling anyone like, don't drink, like you should never have a beer or don't ever go out and get drunk and whatever. Like, mm. But just to to learn from your experience and to hear your insights, like what would you say to young fellas or, and women, anyone, um, about their relationship with alcohol? Yeah, I, I think with this one particular fella, he was a young 15, 16, sort of pushing to become a man and like we had a bit of a drinking culture where we were. 
weren't far from town, so it was easy to go to the pub and that. Like, it was always fun. Like, we always mad doing fun stuff. I just said to him, I was like, mate, like, I would have been so far in my life if I didn't have that, like, so much further in it, if I didn't have that influence and, like, that thing dragging me down. But everyone's different. I'm not going to say my experience is different to anyone else's, but it is in the way that, like, I feel so much better now without it. Like, as soon as you've got past that barrier, it's all right. But if I said to any sort of young fellas, it would just be that, like, I don't see it ever making you go forward. Like, it's not going to. It's not going to help you get up early in the morning. It's not going to help you do any of these things that is going to get you further in life. So if you can stay away from it and you're happy, just stay away from it, I reckon. And I guess um, moderation or, or and being having an awareness of yeah. how much you're drinking, what you're drinking, how often and what impact it's having on you. Yeah, everyone's different, but it's hard, it's hard to say, yeah, Having trouble saying something about it now. Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's and because like, well, I don't know about you, but as I'm saying this, I'm also at the same time like there's the things you want to say, but then I'm also ex- like on at the exact same moment in my head, like being like, am I sounding too preachy? Am I is, is this mm. gonna people turning off like listening now? Like, I, and so you kind of start second guessing yourself and doubting. So it's kind of hard to articulate in yeah. that balance. Um, but I think from all the things we've yarned about today, like. I think it's it's been a real privilege to like have you share your stories and your insights and experiences because like there's just been so much that's gone on in the past you know mm. well maybe like 15 years since you left school um and this like it's just been you've learned so much and kind of like grow like you I think everyone listening would just be able to see this growth from like and and whether it's like with the the drinking or the um, attitudes towards safety, um, and 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 how that's also impacted you as a leader. Like I know, we, and and just to finish up, like we've spoken a little bit about how you were in leadership roles at a not a young age, but you know how your how you approach leadership and and being responsible for other people has changed over mm. the years as you've kind of grown up and had these experiences. And and these days, it is there's a lot of people that get into leadership very very young and. Yeah, I I still think I was way too young. I was Twenty years old, had a point to prove. Like I didn't make people better. Like I was just always just showing that I was better than them, and for them to try and be like me. Like yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say. I guess yeah. That that's probably just the last thing I wanted to ask you about is again for young people listening. There is a real um in industry today. There is like a become head stockman at 18, 19, manager at 24, 25, you know, it's all, everything's happening a lot sooner now than it used to back in the day. Like you used to have like a 30-year-old head stockman and mm. be a manager in your 30s or 40s and it's all happening a lot faster now. But I thought some of the stuff you said last night was really interesting about, um, you know, the about how you thought, yeah, you were too young when you first started kind of moving up and, and what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, well, Back just before I started, like you, your stock camp's got like a hundred years, two hundred years of buddy the industry together. Like, because your head stockman's forty, your buddy or your ringers are thirty, sort of thing. Like everyone's older. Like nothing. There's no 
19-year-old head stockmans or any of that. And you know how to work with people. You know how to deal with them a bit better. So when I sort of got first asked to be stepped up on the leading hand, I was like, oh, like I feel like I didn't tick enough boxes for that role. Like I really liked the idea of the money and I really liked the idea of the responsibility. And it made me feel good being young, getting asked those sort of things. But like I, like I had the humility inside myself to say to me, oh, no, I can't do this or I can't do that yet. What do I do when they ask me how to do it? Like I want to be the best of the best of everything to be able to show everyone everything. And he was just like, no, you're right. We'll bloody get you doing them jobs straight away. Like you learn, finish learning how to do your brand new gates, assemblies and blah, 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 whatever, I, whatever it was I was asking about. And I didn't know yet. He, um, yeah, that was then my job. So then I could fit those, like tick those boxes and young fellas nowadays, like, Really, really annoys the shit out of me because they go to a station. So first year they've come off land, so they're half all right in their own family business. They made up with the boss there, who's probably young himself. He does two years there, like he does his first year, then he comes back for a second year. No one else does, so he's the only one that knows the place, knows the drill, and he's just given responsibility then and there. But he, like he's nowhere near ready for it. Like he hasn't even seen the world yet. Like doesn't know enough. And then within three years, he's managing a place, and you're like, shit. Like I, I feel, yeah, it's just changed so much. Whether we're learning quicker or not, I, but like I consider everything I learn, like it just goes in the toolbox. So whether it's his way or her way, like it, nothing. You can never come away from something without learning something these days. I think, um, like, there's some things, though, you, you can't learn without time, though. Like, you, mm. you have to do the – like, you could young go horse. on – yeah. Like a young horse, it's got to do its miles. Like, you can't just take it to a um, clinic and it's going to be a bloody good camp draft or whatever. It's No, it has to do miles. They yeah. have to do miles. Like, again. you could do a year out in the station and get every, like, um, you know, have, like, the TAFE certifications and get signed off for every skill under the sun, but – at the end of the day, it takes 10 years of fixing, I don't know, motor cars or 10 years of, of, um, dealing with staff dramas or whatever. I'm just picking 10 years, but you know, mm. you could do a, a, you could sit down and we could do a three day workshop on, um, conflict resolution, but the way you, you know, doing that and then doing like 10 years of actually dealing with people day in, day out, yeah. day in, day out, like it's so different. And, um, yeah, I just thought that it just seems like you've, yeah, everything, like you've just grown so much and you've got all these, like it's all this, I guess these things could have all, you could still be in a different place right now. Like you could just still be, you know, um, yeah, you've had a few accidents and been a bit, you know, I was going to say wild child, but you're not really, because you weren't really doing anything wild for any of these accidents. Like no. they were the most, like Shake just poking along things. But, you know, you could just be like some larrikin that's having a, you know, still drinking and, and lacks attitude towards safety and, and whatever. But everything that's happened, you've taken on board and built it into the person you are today, like all for the better. And I just think that's really admirable. Yeah. Tried to, tried to, tried to learn my way through life. I should have listened to mum more when I was growing up. Like, they're only trying to help you, but you think they hate you. Um, yeah. So, um, to finish up, the final question I'll ask you is, looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Don't take shit for granted and, like, 
always be ready for change. Like, there's always going to be a change. Adapt and overcome. Like, yeah, looking back at my life, I, I don't regret anything. I don't wish I did things different because I can't change the past and I won't let the past define who I am for the future.